This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of automobiles. Ride-hailing companies have introduced the possibility of a pay-as-you-go car, and my guest today, Stefan Bergstahler of Goldman Sachs Research, has written a report describing how that industry is poised to grow exponentially over the next few years. We'll also talk about electric vehicles, automation, and what all this means for the cities of the future. Stefan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Your report identifies a new product category, which you call mobility, simply mobility. Ride-sharing companies like DD, Uber, Lyft have essentially unbundled car use and car ownership and allowed folks the ability, in your words, to pay as they go, like we do with other products. How did that opportunity come about? Well, I would focus on four drivers. First, car ownership, as we know it today, is inherently inefficient and costly. The typical car on average is utilized 5% per year. Second, the experience to take your car into a city it has become quite punitive in terms of finding a parking and then the cost of parking. And then thirdly is technology. We have now smartphones, GPS, maps, and all of these are building blocks for the system for a pay-as-you-go ride-hailing provider. So now we know where we are, where we want to go, but also where the taxis are or the ride-hailers are to get us where we want to go. So it's a much more dynamic and efficient matching of demand and supply. And then finally, access to capital. The world's three largest ride-hailers, you mentioned, you know, raised more than $36 billion to build out that infrastructure and have been valued in excess of $100 billion. And those things together are giving the impetus to this new service, mobility as a service, that what we call pay-as-you-go mobility. So today there's roughly 6 billion ride-hailing trips a year made around the world. You estimate that the number of ride-hailing trips could grow to $83 billion annually by 2030. What's going to drive that growth? Well, that's obviously a bit of a stab into the future. So we have a model behind it. But if we just zero in on the key drivers here, first of all, we assume in maybe conveniently that the mobility pattern we're observing today is not going to change going forward. And that is, on average, we're using 2.2 trips a day per capita. And that is to go to work, to go to school or drive kids to school for leisure, you know, to shopping, etc. So that's not going to change. There's population growth. Today, there's 7.5 billion of us on this planet. You know, it's predicted to grow to 8.5 billion, and more of us are going to live in urban centers, and we inherently believe this mobility as a service is going to be an urban phenomenon at first. And so urban population grows from 54% to 60%. So put these two things together, we'll have to accommodate 25% more trips. And then finally, there's going to be a mixed shift. As we get to know these services, people are going to substitute maybe personal rides in their own car or using a taxi with these ride-hailing opportunities. And all these factors together is going to drive this growth. How does consuming mobility change the economics of car ownership? In other words, what's going to happen to companies that make cars? Contrary to what one would intuitively assume, we don't believe that it's going to be a watershed event for the car industry. It's not necessarily spelling disaster. First of all, consuming mobility is an urban phenomenon. So it's geographically limited in our mind. Why are we saying this? Because ride-hailing is just we're using this as the example for the pay-as-you-go mobility industry. There's different variants of that. But what's central and common to all of them is it's they're built on maximizing utilization of the asset. And so therefore you need a dense population. And ideally you also need random traffic patterns. You know, those two conditions make the best backdrop 
for an attractive economic outcome. So in our mind, mobility as a service is largely an urban consumer offering. Private car ownership will remain the cheapest way of transportation going forward. Today we estimate that the per mile cost of a privately owned car is a fifth of the per mile cost of a ride-hailing operation, so 30 cents versus $1.50. In rural centers... The economics are pretty clear. It will remain probably the predominant form of transportation. And then even if we assume that the penetration of car ownership in cities will decline, and in our models we assume from around about 30% to 23%, which is basically from one-third to one-fourth of any inhabitant of a city is going to owning a car, the growth in urban population will compensate that. And then there's two drivers here. So you have the underlying growth of car population in cities will continue to go up. And those cars which are utilized in robo-taxis, we believe are going to be depreciated and replaced much faster, three times faster. I was going to say, if, you, if, if the car is being utilized more, presumably you're going to become obsolete quicker. Absolutely right. And therefore, when we did the math, surprisingly to us, the absolute sales volume, at least on our model, was fairly unimpacted. So how about taxi services? Why haven't taxis been able to compete in this new marketplace? Is it just a failure to adapt or is there something wrong with the business model? Well, first of all, the biggest problem for taxis is the lack of utilization. Because if you stand in the rank, if you wait at an airport for this next fare, if you drive around the city for the next customer, that's an inefficient use of time. And so the ride-hailing companies are trying to minimize this inefficient use of time by also dynamically matching demand and supply. What's going in favor of the taxi companies is that they are largely regulated businesses. And so when you look in the world where ride-hailing has maybe slower penetrated, so in Tokyo, for instance, or in continental European countries, it's often because regulation, taxi regulation, has prevented that faster adoption. And what you might see is, particularly in those areas, that the taxi business is sort of looking towards the elements of the ride-hailing business model to kind of adapt, as you put it. But it's a very gradual process. We've seen some interesting early relationships crop up in the mobility space. What might some of those relationships tell us about where the space is headed? What we first observed is kind of a land crab mentality of these new companies. These are tech companies on the one side. On the other side, it's a brick-and-mortar business. There's a guy in the car which provides the service. And to make it economic for these people to do that, even if they might not get the load or the utilization, you've got to subsidize it. So they raised capital. They're using the capital to drive that. And you can see, we've observed, you know, obviously, in some geographic areas where two competitors clashed with each other, that the competitive deeper pockets were ultimately able to be the dominant player in the market. So we're arguing that in terms of the ride-hailing opportunity, you probably see a sort of regional championship, that the global market gets divided in a particular geographic area, a company's dominant versus in others. The manufacturers, obviously, dealing with many changes in the moment, they have made some investments in those ride-hailing operations, I would say rather maybe defensively, to understand what is changing, what is involved. On the other side, they are also trying to play around or make some investments in different business models in terms of trying to figure out what is the skill set we need to add in order to succeed in this ride-hailing world. Because we are talking about a service and car companies in the moment are selling a product. Yeah, it's a manufacturing business, and so the mindset is around that. But you've seen some fairly traditional manufacturing companies do some very interesting things in the space. 
Yes, they're starting, right? Over the last two years, we've seen progress being made. It's like a jigsaw puzzle which is going to be put together. How economic attractive this is going to be further down the line, we will see. But in the report, we're arguing that the autonomous car, which ultimately is the backbone for the robo-taxi, is going to be an expensive car to produce. And ultimately, this car is enabling the business opportunity we're discussing. So why conceptually would a car company sell this car? And what we explored in this report is saying, if you weren't to sell this car and if you made this car part of the service offering, and rather than selling it, you would sell the service on a three-year basis, in our maths, it's five to six times more profitable. So $14,000 versus on average $2,000 per car. Per car, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars. We're seeing all kinds of companies in the space now, technology companies, car companies, hybrids. How does that play out over time? When you think about it, the ride-hailing company today, you have this ride-hailing driver, and the driver fulfills two principal functions. One, he drives you around, or she drives you around. And B, the person provides the capital, so it funds the service and ultimately provides a clean car, a safe car maintains the asset which provides the service. So the next pivotal event is going to be when we move to autonomous. The computer will be able to drive us around. But computers can't finance themselves yet. So that's a big question mark. And what we're arguing is that this fragmented part of the value chain today, which sits with the drivers, needs to be institutionalized in order to enable this service to be happening. And so that aspect is an opportunity, let's call it fleet management, which obviously is adjacent to the traditional car makers when you think about their financing operations, but it's also adjacent to rental car companies. They know how to maintain and turn around these fleets. So when you think about the value chain, in the report we talk about, just to conceptualize this, the aggregator. The aggregator for us is an app, which is maybe in conjunction with a city. Which you say, I want to go from A to B, and the app tells you, well, you can walk, you can ride the bike, this ride-hailing company costs you X, the taxi costs you Y, and there's ultimately you're making your choices in terms of time and cost. I use that app every day. <laughs> and so underneath, we believe, is going to be a level of optimizers. And these are the ride-hailing companies today. And then, so what's the competitive advantage of these optimizers? In our mind, is the data they have, the knowledge where we are, when. And the patterns. And the patterns. And so they can preload the system. And therefore, when you look for the mobility solution, they will be able to give you a better time to fulfillment and possibly a lower cost because they're running at a higher utilization, which is ultimately the economic differentiator for these services. And underneath, we have these fleet operators. There's nobody who has the full skill set yet. And so there will be partnerships evolving, and we see some of them. But the interesting point is, in the moment, cars are vertical. Cars are sold to an individual. When we think about this, we often talk about the sales process going to have to become horizontal. What I mean by that is you probably see that cities are going to drive this process. So you're going to go and compete maybe for a license in a particular city to provide this particular service. And that is a different skill set required. It's way out of the competences of the car company today. You partly addressed this, but what are some of the long-term business models that you might see play out over time if you see really widespread adoption of autonomous vehicles? From a traditional manufacturer's point of view, it really is worthwhile exploring if you're making a car, if you're playing in the robotaxi market, whether you are become part of whether you extend your value chain like you've done today in terms of financial services and utilize your balance sheet and your knowledge base to provide some of the funding and ultimately also 
team up with others or become part of a consortium to kind of provide the fleet in the broader context. So when we think about this, we've came to the view that actually to be successful, you want to be regionally dominant rather than globally irrelevant. And then on top of it, obviously, there's the predominant one because it's the closest where we can relate to the right-hailing opportunity. The question is, who is going to win there? And I think the company which is better able to match supply with demand is going to be the one which is going to grab the opportunity more. And then there will be variants of that concept of providing us with mobility solutions when we need different ones. Right? For instance, you would like a convertible for a weekend. You know, I'm sure there is a, a business model emerging but the bulk is going to be about satisfying our daily trip demand at a more economic cost. Consumers already have more choices. Will travel become cheaper for consumers over time? When this is often discussed, people would argue intuitively yes, because they start out, oh, you're telling me it's a the per mile cost. Half of this goes to the driver. The driver is not going to be there, and therefore costs should come down. But there's an offsetting part of that, which is the driver's functionality of what he brings to the party needs to be industrialized. And when we do the math, so that the dollar fifty might drop to dollar twenty, but it's not gonna go to zero. Also, as this service is gonna grow, you might find that some of the cities or cities in general are starting to think about how we're gonna tax that. There's already a lot of dialogue around that today. Therefore there's another element which makes the costs go up. So in our view it's not a substitution for public transport, but it's another segment in between the, let's say, private car ownership, the taxi, and the public transport. Yeah. We've seen some cities basically say, I'm going to tax this ride-sharing and invest more of it in our infrastructure for mass transportation so that they can get the balance right. Yeah. But that's why when we think about it, it comes back to this aggregator concept. And you could see how a consortium could work with the local public transport office to kind of use this flexibility of what we're discussing to complement the public transport system and offering. And ultimately, the objective for any city planner is to keep a city moving. So you see different levels of adoption for cities with more widely available public transport versus cities that just don't have the infrastructure, newer cities, perhaps? Yes. The best adoption scenario is a wealthy city, densely populated with random traffic pattern. That is the best context to make these right-hailing business models, I think, economic. So what we did in the report, we looked at the top 300 cities globally, and analyzed what we call the pull factors, which is the wealth and how inefficient this car use today, so how low is the utilization, and the push factors, which is pollution, congestion, and are there any viable alternatives out there in terms of public transport. And then we found in a little matrix, there's two broad groups of cities, large Asian cities, we found they're ready for this disruption, like Tokyo, Shanghai, Hong Kong, they're all in a screening very well. But there's plenty of what we call the European cities and some of the American cities, which are what we call willing adopters. The pull factors are very strong, but you haven't gotten the traffic or the pollution aspects yet. It's not country by country, it's more like city by city, and it's an urban phenomenon. So larger cities first makes economic sense. So obviously, no matter what happens, more and more cars, both autonomous and traditionally operated, are going to be electrified. But today's infrastructure supporting personal transport is almost entirely geared towards gas-powered cars. You and your colleagues have written a different report on that challenge. What kind of infrastructure has to be built out to support EVs? Well, a lot of the discussion we have with investors, for instance, autonomous and electrification is kind of the same for many people, the way this is happening. But our utilities colleagues in London have recently published a report where they tried to quantify what is required to make us go electric. 
they're talking about six trillion of capex required in charging networks and power infrastructure, 2.6 trillion of charging infrastructure, and of which 1.7 trillion would be in smart grids to kind of manage the peak loading on the grid. Those are global numbers. You see, it sounds like a huge number, but global numbers and over time, presumably. Yeah, and then just to size it properly, if we go 100%. Electric. Electric, right? But we see this as a process going over, I'd say, two decades. We're talking about 40% of sales going to be electric. You write in that report that current battery ranges are sufficient for at least 90% of current vehicle usage. But cost is obviously still limiting. These cars tend to be pretty expensive. What has to happen for adoption of EVs to really take off? So when we think about the EV adoption curve, on the one side, it's kind of a push adoption, which is regularly driven because EVs are zero emissions. So by having them in my portfolio, I reduce my CO2 footprint. So that's what I have to achieve. When we really talk about the wider adoption of penetration, we're talking about the pull. So when is the consumer asking for the EV? And for that, I think the industry is using um, the model that the EV needs to be comparable in experience to the internal combustion engine today. So in terms of range, 500 kilometers or miles, and in terms of cost, because as a society, we're not unlikely going to spend substantially more for mobility. So these are sort of the limiting factors. And then very quickly, you end up at the battery cost, which today is still punitive. So when we go back to try and figure out what is the inflection point for adoption, my colleague Koto Yozawa in Japan, he's gone back to the Prius experience. And when the payback for the consumer buying a hybrid was three years, that's when you saw the inflection in the Prius demand. So we use that concept when we look back and what needs to happen in terms of battery costs to have the similar experience, obviously making some assumptions. And we concluded that you need $100 per kilowatt hour from currently it's around the double the rate in order to see a consumer-led adoption because the consumer ends up with a product which is comparable in experience in terms of usage, but also in terms of costs. That, of course, is the current consumer, which is an individual buying this and not someone who's going to be utilizing it as part of a fleet, perhaps. That is correct. And arguably, if you think about the robotaxi, it's almost like a business service offering. In our model, the robotaxi is two and a half times more expensive than the average car. So yes, you could argue in that context, given the utilization, you might get adoption earlier. Get quicker payback. You've talked about this already, but let's step back and think about the design of cities. Will cities compete on certain sets of characteristics to attract electric cars and autonomous fleets? How could this change the way in which cities design themselves as they expand or grow? As a city, you want to attract capital. And in order to attract capital, you need to provide an infrastructure which allows a city to move and a city which isn't polluted. These are the preconditions for the adoption or the welcoming of the services we're discussing. So when you go around the world, you see that the town planners are clearly deprioritizing the car in the town. And when we really want to have a glimpse in the future, we go to Singapore. In Singapore, you have heavily regulated car ownership. Road usage is very expensive. You're encouraged to use the public transport. The ownership costs are five to six times that of the global average. And we've seen the impact on car ownership. That is an extreme example. And it's going to be in a partnership with these mobility service providers and city planners to gradually find ways of allowing the service to penetrate and then ultimately allow the cities to evolve into better places. And in this process, we talk to academics who research urban life going forward. And they talked about the reurbanization, that people want to come back from the country to towns. And in order to accommodate that, the car probably has to make way. 
So is personal mobility becoming just another commodity? Is this new vision of cars and technology something that can be won by any single company or even a partnership? Or will there still be room for the kinds of personalization we see in cars today, particularly in countries like the United States and Germany, where drivers view their car as a mini kingdom? <laughs> yes. There's maybe more of a bifurcation between the mobility as the service, right? I need to go from A to B. And in that sense, these pay-as-you-go business models are going to be more convenient and more economic ways of addressing that need. But on the other side, today, car ownership is steeply uneconomic, and it's not rational. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy cars today and utilize them at 5%. And it's difficult to see, particularly in the context of the conversation about urban and rural, what we had, why this would change in the long run. So I think the car ownership will remain. It will remain a deeply personal experience, and therefore branding design, consumer experiences will become more differentiating factors than pure power what it was in the past. Stefan, thank you very much for joining us today. Fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on November 2nd, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.